Shout out to Steve Train. Jump on the Steve Train. We real estate disruptors. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Real Estate Disruptors. Today, we've got my good buddy, Mark Delator with SBD Housing. Mark flew in from Kansas City to talk about what realtors and wholesalers get wrong. And he's probably really excited to be here this particular week. Absolutely. The Super Bowl is just right up the street. Now, I am on a mission to create 100 millionaires. And the information on this podcast alone is enough to help you become a millionaire in the next five to seven years. If you'll take consistent action, you will become one. Now, we recognize that running a sales team is hard work, even thankless at times. You've got to hold people accountable to what they told you they want to do. So you might feel exasperated. You might feel like you're alone. I assure you that you are not. Ren and I are helping other business owners get through to their sales teams to yield record performance in this shifting market. If that sounds like something that might be interesting to you, text LEADERS to 33777. And if you get value today, please tag it from below. Share this episode right now. That way we can all grow together. And this is a live show. So please ask your questions for Mark to answer. You ready? Let's do it. All right. So um, let's just real quick. I know you've been on the show before, but just for everyone that's listening and hearing your story for the first time, what was your life like before real estate? Boy, um, I was talking to one of your uh, employees earlier and um, he chuckled when I told him I'd been in real estate for about 21 years because uh, <laughs> he said, man, that's about as old as I am. <laughs> um, he's, he's not lying. No, life before real estate um, was college. I mean, I came straight out of college and got stuck into, into real estate, um, flipped a house um, at a very young age and just kind of fell in love at first flip. So um, life for me was college and tennis and, and golf and hanging out. So right into real estate, you didn't go get a degree to get a job and do the, you know, the, so university for me looked a lot like, um, didn't know what I wanted to do. I had the entrepreneurial flair. I knew I wanted to get into, um, business for sure. Um, was certainly realizing at a young age, uh, well, once I got into college that there was no way I was going to turn pro in tennis, uh, I was good enough to play division one. And that, uh, obviously afforded me the luxury of getting my education paid for, but, mm-hmm. um, I stayed on, got my MBA. And then um, had been working and dabbling with um, my father and I actually on an advertising venture at the time, putting advertising inside commercial aircraft. Mm-hmm. Um, but then September 11th hit, and um, clearly airlines were uh, very leery of any new forms of advertising. So at that time, I um, yeah flipped one house and, and got going. All right. So you like that first taste, and you kept going. Yeah, I just never... Um, I think I was young enough and, and, uh, you know, when you have no overhead and, and, um, you know, a supportive, uh, fiance at the time that mm-hmm. said, yeah, go do whatever you want to do. Um, I was just not really wanting to go sit behind a desk and work for someone else. Mm-hmm. What's the definition of an entrepreneur someone that will be willing to work 80 hours for themselves so they don't have to work 40 hours for someone else. Yeah. Um, that's kind of my, that's definitely me in a nutshell. <laughs> well, that's absolutely right. So, uh, who helped you along the way? Right. I mean, going from your first house, I'm sure there are a few mistakes along the way. Mm. Who helped you in your journey to get where you are today? Oh, goodness. Um, so many people. I think it starts with having um, supportive parents. Um, mm-hmm. So that was certainly, and my siblings are always just, yep, go do whatever you want to do. I mean, keep in mind, I flew halfway around the world. It, it's really coming full circle for me now because I have a, a young son, 16 years old, who's looking at going off to college and I'm suddenly having flashbacks when I was his age thinking I might want to fly halfway around the world to go to university in America, having been born and raised in New Zealand. So um, yeah, it's really come full circle and I'm um, 
appreciative of the support that my parents gave me. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, I'm, I'm a uh, uh, voracious reader. I love to read books. I think most of my mentors I don't know personally, um, but for sure, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I know it's cliche, but that really altered my perception of real estate. And although I tried to you know, get into stocks and, and the stock market, just never made sense to me. So I've always been a real estate guy and yeah. just started reading all up on the real estate from a young age. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. So like, I kind of made this joke to someone the other day. So it, it, I think like this path that we go through is like, it's, it's Kiyosaki. Mm-hmm. And then at some point along the way, you find Sean Terry on a podcast. <laughs> and somewhere along the way, like you're successful. Like there's like these two <laughs> steps that a lot of people go through. Um, and so what were some of your biggest victories Right, twenty-one years is a large body of work. Yeah, what are some of your biggest victories? So I was a courthouse steps junkie. So um, I answered an ad in a newspaper, which some of your readers may not understand what that is, but it's this <laughs> former medium that you used to pick up and look at. It's like it's on paper, it's black and white. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, there was an article in there, and it's in the Kansas City Star, and it said, "Come learn how to buy foreclosure properties." And mm-hmm. so I answered the ad, you know, free, right? So. It was a, a lead-in, and I went there and then went down to Springfield, Missouri, a guy who used to be in the education space is no longer there, a guy by the name of Larry Holder. Um, and he taught me just how to buy houses on the courthouse steps. You know, there were 50 people in the room at that time, Steve, and I'm curious now to see who kind of made a profession of it. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing not many. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, it w- went down and learned that and came back and kind of fell into this niche where I was very fortunate that this was back in the day where, in Kansas City at least, we only had like two or three people on the courthouse steps. So, that's where I, you know, crushed it was mm-hmm. buying hugely undervalued properties at 20, 30 cents on the dollar for, you know, a long period of time. And it was very hard to go wrong when you're buying that, that, dis- that much of a discount of properties. Yeah. Um, I always say time heals all wounds in real estate, but mm-hmm. also if you can buy cheap enough, the, the mistakes you can clunk along, they're, right. they're never, uh, you know, a few holes in the boat, you can just plug them. It's never the devastating blow that sinks your ship. So mm-hmm. I was very fortunate to go along that. But some of the biggest wins... Um, you know, I bought an apartment complex for $10,000 and, and sold it for 650. I mean, that was you know, pretty kind, big of win. A, kind of a big win. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I've had my ups and downs. I mean, there have been um, some, you know, devastations along the way. I had a, yeah. had a bit of business divorce that, that taught me a lesson, mm-hmm. you know, kind of millionaire by the time you're 30 and then crush back down to nothing and then have to build back up again. So, yeah. you know, there's ebbs and flows in anyone's career. So let's talk about buying an apartment complex for $10,000. <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing this is a courthouse step situation. Yeah, and it was just a random one where most of the attorneys in town um, were advertising in two form, the Daily Record and the Pulse, these two legal publications that they were required, they're not required, that they used to advertise all of their sales. Mm-hmm. Um, it just so happened that this one attorney did not use that medium, and it happened to be my attorney that I was using for estate planning. Mm-hmm. And she said, hey, by the way, I've got this auction coming up, and, and uh, you know, they, there's not much owed on it, but um, I'm going to cry the sale. And th- they were required to announce where it was going to be, um, but it didn't have to be at a certain, in any one location, just a public venue. Mm-hmm. And so she just did it at her office out on, in front in the parking lot, and I was the only one there. She opened the bidding at $10,000, <laughs> And it obviously needed a little bit of work, but yeah, I mean, I, I held it for a long time. It was actually a catalyst for my venture down to Florida because I immediately went, bought it for 10000 um, on October 30th. So two days later, I went to collect rent and got um, $5,000 in rent from all of the, it was a 12-unit apartment complex. Mm-hmm. So went and got all the rent um, from all the people and then turned around and, and went to the bank and said, hey, I've got this asset. Can you do an appraisal? I think it appraised at the time at like 300. Mm-hmm. So I immediately pulled out a $250,000 line of credit and started nice. buying other properties. So 
real estate just just cycles like that. If you have equity, you can you can capitalize. Now, I sold it years and years and years later. Um, I think I held it for about a decade, so that's why I depreciated up to um, six hundred fifty. But yeah, I ended up exiting from that one, and it was it was a great deal. But even if you buy a three hundred thousand dollars asset for ten thousand, can't really lose. Can't lose. Yeah, and you said there was a business divorce. Yeah. What was the business divorce, and then what were the lessons you learned? I learned. Um, so the business divorce, I was flipping houses on my own and had someone come to me and say, um, hey, why are you not doing more? These deals on the courthouse steps seem crazy. Mm-hmm. And I said, um, yeah, well, I mean, it's money. You've got to have cash on the day, cash on the barrel head, as they used to say. Cash and on the barrel head? That's what they used to say, the auction. You've got to have cash on the barrel head. And uh, I've not heard that expression before. So you've literally got to pony up same day and wire money or sometimes bring it in certified funds. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, unlimited capital was a way for me to scale that operation. So two business partners came on with me. They were the silent, quote unquote, business partners. And uh, I was the operations guy. And we had a good run for about seven years. Um, but when the market turned in 2008 and things started getting tight, um, where we could have pivoted a different direction and gone our separate ways. We owned about 120 doors at the time. Um, a large portion of those completely paid off. Um, I learned very quickly that if you own a third of a business and the other two business partners want to gang up on you, a, hostile, a hostile takeover <laughs> is a very real thing. And so, um, yeah, that was, it was a painful lesson because mm-hmm. I was just pushed out. Um, but everything happens for a reason. And, um, I've, I grew through that. Um, it was very painful, you know. Oh, I can imagine. Tears and, and trying to explain to your wife why you no longer have a job or mm-hmm. a business and, mm-hmm. and, and starting all over again. Um, but everything happens for a reason, and I, was, I grew through that and um, have maintained 100% control of my yeah. companies since that time and, and uh, you know, was, was all the better for it. Yeah. You know, I think uh, there are some challenges along the way, right, when you're building a business. Actually, Paul Sparks and I, we did an episode last Friday talking about, like, the importance of structuring a partnership the right way, mm. setting that right expectations, but also how you should, in very, very few exceptions, never do a 50-50 partnership. Right. Someone has to have decisional decision-making right. authority. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So um, let's see here. So you had sent me a video, and I, was, I, I love the idea. I said, Steve, on the show, we should talk about what realtors and wholesalers get wrong. So obviously, you've done well, particularly in Kansas City. So let's talk about this concept. <clears throat> what is it that realtors and investors generally get wrong. So here's a great example. We already talked about that apartment complex, mm-hmm. okay? So let's just say I bought it for 10,000 and immediately wanted to sell it. And let's just argue, you know, for instance, I could have sold it for 300,000 at appraised value at the time. Okay? But you might so, want to wholesale it for like 140 or something like that, right? So sure, so let's say I buy it for 10, sell for 30, and it would have been a $290,000 gain. Mm-hmm. I would have paid tax on that. You're giving up $90,000 right off the bat to Uncle the government. Sam. Now you've got 200 grand and, and then you've got to go invest that and try and repeat the cycle. Mm-hmm. The difference is I was able to get the $250,000 in a line of credit. And because you're borrowing that money, you can then turn around and invest it. You pay nothing in tax. In mm-hmm. fact, it's a tax benefit because you can depreciate, although on $10,000, you're not depreciating much. Mm-hmm. But the idea is with any investment, you can depreciate and get a paper loss. Mm-hmm. and at the same time, turn around leverage and go buy other assets. The accumulation of assets is the key to wealth long-term. And 
in a nutshell, I believe that both real estate agents and real estate investors transact more than just buy and hold. Right. And the greatest mistake that I believe they're making is that they should be holding more assets. The wealth that I have created in my lifetime is not from transacting. It's just from buying and holding. And then just, you know, down the road, these assets double in value. So we're to divvy up Mark's wealth. 100% of it. How much of that wealth came from active income? How much of that wealth came from buying properties? Okay. Um, you've got to be careful there because obviously your active income, if you're smart, you'll pour into, you know, buying more assets. Correct. But as it sits right now, I would say that, you know, 80% of my wealth is just from assets that I have bought and held and appreciated in value. Right. Um, I would say probably 50% of my wealth is just pure appreciation because mm -hmm. I've, you know, bought assets for the last 20 years. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, Real estate, in any market you're in, I would challenge someone to go back and pull MLS comps. Sometimes I'll be, you know, comping a property for one of my acquisitions agents. It's a tough comp. And I'll go back and look at data and I'll look and see the same house I could have bought that I'm thinking of buying now for 200000 because it's worth three hundred and ten. The same house, I could have bought, you know, 10 years ago for 100000 Yeah. It's just real estate doubles in value every 20 years. So we were driving in Mesa the other day, my wife and I. Uh, with the kids, I can't remember where exactly we were going, but we're in Mesa, and as I'm driving, on the left-hand side are all these fourplexes that I've shown. As a realtor, I've shown these fourplexes, and they're worth more than, I think, half a million today. And I just drive by it, and I just shake my head. It's like, I was showing these when they were like 160. Yeah. Right? Like, we just bought it for 160 and just held on to it. Would have done pretty well for ourselves. And 160 was not a lot of money. 160 for a fourplex can't even buy a house today, yeah. right, for 160 So let's just say, hypothetically, we got a good friend, Jason Medley, sitting next to you. Because mm -hmm. Jason has said that a lot of times we try to buy assets for passive income at the risk or at the cost of our active income. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Like, the best way to have passive income is to make a lot of active income. It's yep. more or less his expression. You, you're familiar with Sure. Okay. In this instance, we're talking about you should be buying more assets to buy and hold. Mm -hmm. So can you help me reconcile that argument? Yeah, I mean, clearly, you know, there, there's validities to both points. Um, I think he would, he's also buying assets, mm -hmm. right? He chooses to lend money mm -hmm. um, and he's creating paper assets. I don't think many people have the ability to do what he does. Not what he does, no. <laughs> so um, it, it's a unique proposition, but he's still creating an asset that, that, that spits off passive income. Right. 100% agree that you have to have an active income to be able to go buy assets. Um, mm -hmm. I think those that, um, but, but I think that the message I'm trying to get out there is that I'm talking to people that make a lot of money, mm -hmm. but they'll go buy a flashy car or a bigger house or take massive gotcha. vacations rather than, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to tell someone that's making, you know, $50,000 a year you know, to start buying houses. I mean, that would be over leveraging. I just believe that there are very successful people in this world that are oblivious to the great asset that's mm -hmm. out there for them to pour money into. And it's so easy for us to put hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars into the stock market where it's truly just volatile and you don't get the benefits of these four pillars of real estate, which is appreciation, the tax benefits through depreciation, the cash flow, and the scale with which you can, because of the leverage. Yeah. So, um, and, and, and I, I love that we're talking about this topic because uh, I'm in a different mastermind uh, 
it's a realtor mastermind in the Phoenix market. Mm-hmm. And there's this realtor, uh, Paul Pastor, who I look up to. And I want to say about once every four to six months, I just put his fist on the table and it's like, you guys need to buy more real estate, <laughs> right? Like the greatest mistake that realtors make all the time is that they don't have rental incomes. Like yes. you guys, and he looks around, right? He's been doing this for 40 plus years. He looks around it's like all you guys that I've known for all these years can't stop working. I can do whatever I want whenever I want because I've been picking up real estate all along the way. But for the life of me, I can't figure out why realtors who buy and sell real estate, who suggest on a regular basis it's a good time or you should buy real estate, who to this present day say you should be buying real estate are not buying real estate. Well, and and I think part of it, Steve, is that there's an active portion. They feel like they're going to get bogged down with the management. Mm -hmm. And, you know, without dialed-in property management, you know, the two big killers of cash flow obviously are vacancy and maintenance. If every property was occupied forever and never had any maintenance, everyone would do it. But there is, so there's a negative connotation to thinking that they're going to have to answer phones, but you find the right property manager and that takes care of itself. I think that realtors um, are underestimating the greatest tax benefit the government gives us. If you're a fully licensed real estate professional, you're allowed to take 100% of your you know, paper losses in years. So you would be minimizing the taxes that you're paying to the government through the actual uh, depreciation you're taking on your assets. And the other thing is, People look at an asset and say, oh, it's only cash flowing, you know, a couple of grand a year. And if someone moves out, then that's my whole cash flow gone. They're missing the whole point. Mm-hmm. This is not about monthly cash flow now. It's about having cash flow in the future. The biggest misconception, I think, with regard to real estate is that the monthly cash flow from a piece of real estate is going to be life changing now. No, it is not. You're not going to be able to go and buy real estate and have it change your life. However, you can also not go in retirement and buy a massive portfolio. You have to have had time work for you mm-hmm. because you'll leverage the asset and someone else will pay that mortgage off for you. And then in 15 or 20 years time when that asset is paid off, then you have that life-changing financial freedom right. from having a, a fully paid off asset that will be, will be cash flowing. So that's, I think, the, the thing people don't realize is you're not buying it for cash flow today. You're buying it knowing that you will be getting it in the future. It's what delayed gratification is the yeah. sign of maturity. I mean, it's the classic uh, mature play. So we had someone on the show. I want to say two, three weeks ago, Jason Griggs, right? And he uh, he's in the Vegas market, and he uh, is a is a realtor and young guy, or younger than me. So I guess you know, <laughs> take that for what it's worth. And he's got twenty seven properties in the Vegas market, single family homes that are nearly paid off, right? And he's been doing this for not that long, less than 10 years, right? Mm. Um, and he, I asked him like, well, how come you're like the only realtor that's like, you're one of the very few realtors that's actually doing this. Like, well, I asked around and it seemed that all my wealthy friends own real estate. I was like, oh, hey, that's a clue, right? That's a clue we can run with. And so he's been challenged by even peers in our community hey, you should do a cash out refi. You should leverage this so you can buy more assets. And his answer to, to that, those suggestions was, but I'm making the kind of money I want to make mm-hmm. passively. I can do what I want whenever I want. I can, if I want today, take my wife and kids and just go to another country and not have to worry about a thing. Yeah. COVID didn't freak him out. COVID didn't freak him out. No. Right? And you don't have, you're not accountable to like, uh, you have to be careful what you say. You have to be careful what you do. You just, 
You can yeah. live your life exactly on your own terms. Yeah, the, what we coach our investors, so obviously we sell turnkey real estate to yeah. um, high income, high net worth individuals or people that are just wanting to, to build their own portfolio. And we tell them the key is that you scale with leverage to get to a number that once paid off would satisfy your monthly passive income that you're trying to get to. Mm -hmm. So what I'm saying is, let's say that they want to get to 20,000 a month from passive real estate. Well, roughly, when assets are paid off in Kansas City, you're going to bet $1,000 per asset you know, for every, every house. So you'd therefore, in that instance, you'd just scale quickly with leverage to try and get to the number 20 houses as soon as possible. And then after that, you keep just chunking down the equity. Don't go turn and around and put more money into the stock market. You start chunking down the equity and have your tenants paid off. Mm -hmm. So it's a scale with leverage, power down the debt, and then you reach your freedom number very, very quickly. Yeah. And then you touched on something a moment ago that you know people may have missed this, uh, is that a cash out refinance is not taxable. So can we just spend a few minutes here and explain what that means? I'm happy to share a personal story if that would get story story time, right? Sure, Everyone, let's go story time. You know, yeah. it's, when it's more a personal story, um, you know, that helps. But um, I went back and looked at my portfolio in, in uh, 2019, late 2019, just happened to be right before COVID hit. And I was looking at this and thinking, uh, the thing that frustrated me was that I had, I'd always just took one mortgage out per asset, right? And I had about 60 or 70 assets. And so I was looking at them all and doing different valuations. And I called my lender and said, look, rates were low. Can I just put all of these on one note? Mm -hmm. So I didn't really, you know, I don't want to give myself too much credit that I fully knew exactly what I was doing. But I knew if I went on one note, I could suck some money out. All of a sudden, the appraisals came back. And I was like, wow. I mean, the equity that I'd slowly built up, because you kind of ignore them. Like the, these real estate investments are you know, just sit there and ignore it because they just, they just operate. They perform. I have my property management team managing them and, and you just forget about them. You just slowly accumulate them over time and they're just sitting there doing, you know, your checks coming in every month. But then you, what you don't realize is how much they're appreciating your value. So we had them valued and there was just this massive multi-million dollar uh, gain that is just appreciation. Mm -hmm. So I was able to set myself up for, um, you know, at least the protection of a downturn, mm -hmm. um, which ended up happening clearly, um, where I sucked a lot of money out of my portfolio tax-free because it's just borrowed money. I do have to pay that back. Mm -hmm. But the benefit was that I had the rental income to offset that payment. So now my tenants, you know, in debt for millions of dollars, but my tenants are slowly paying that debt off and will be paid off in 15 years. And I was able to, to just hoard some cash and sit on the sidelines because mm -hmm. there's a lot of financial strength by having a lot of dry powder in the bank mm -hmm. and having paid off all personal assets. And yeah. that is a nice place to be. Yeah. So just to, to illustrate for everyone that's listening. So let's just say, for example, you got a property that's a half a million dollars and let's just say it's uh, let's just say it's paid off. Right. If you guys were to sell that property, you can get $500,000 cash minus realtor fees, whatever, right? $500,000 cash, whatever profit on that property you have to pay in taxes. It's taxable income. We're assuming here there's a rental property. But if it's free and clear and you'll get a cash out refinance from the bank, let's just call it $300,000. You pull out that $300,000, that's borrowed money. It's not actual, uh, it's, not, it's not a cash distribution. It's a refinance. So for everyone who's listening, you're getting $300,000 in your pocket. You have to service that debt, but it's not profit. It's Debt. It's just taking money out of the balance sheet. So 
uh, you're just moving 300000 of equity into your pocket, but you have to service that debt. But because you have to service that debt, and it's real debt, it's not income. Yeah, and so because you have a tenant that's in there, again, you've got to manage the asset. If your tenant moves out, then yes, you'll be responsible for the payment. But mm-hmm. you know what you can do with $300,000 in that example? Put a little bit in savings account <laughs> in case the tenant moves out. Yeah. So there's power in that. And, and what you realize is when you scale that and do that, you know, 60 or 70 times versus mm-hmm. just once or twice, then, you know, the, the numbers get pretty big. Yeah. And I've shared with you, right? Like I am envious of all, of all you folks in the Midwest because this cash out refi thing you guys can do like over and over and over and over again. One more challenging uh, in the Phoenix market. Well, I would challenge you that um, in the same way that um, you have the benefits of appreciation here and investors can invest mm-hmm. here, don't feel like you have to be investing in your own market. Mm-hmm. You know, through collaboration and partnership and turnkey providers, mm-hmm. um, you know, we have investors from all over the world that are choosing to invest in Kansas City. Um, most of them are, you know, California, Florida, uh, yeah. Pennsylvania, and that kind of thing, but a lot from Australia, New Zealand, the UK, Germany, I mean, yeah. all over the world. Well, that's actually one of the things I wanted to execute. I don't know if it's 2023 or 2024, but I want to be able to create uh, something within our organization so that everyone that works here can invest right in a portfolio. So we can get a portfolio, right? It's held by the umbrella company, but everyone has the opportunity to invest that works here so that we can truly create wealth. Yeah, um, I think that's, organization. so that brings to mind, Steve, one of the fallacies that I think happens in the workplace is, you know, when someone signs up, day one at, uh, you know, and they go work for a T-Mobile or BMW or one of these big corporations mm-hmm. and they sign up, hey, we do a company dollar match. Mm-hmm. Where does that money go? 401k. Straight into the stock market. Yeah. Right. So it's like they're truly just training you from a very young age, mm-hmm. like let the, the way to build for a time. And then they see the fluctuations. You can't really lever it until mm-hmm. it gets to be super sizable. Um, mm-hmm. You don't get any tax benefits from it. Mm-hmm. So it's just you're taking more out, less out of your paycheck and then you're trying to struggle to make ends meet. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, the mature investor is someone that says, I will choose where I put my retirement dollars. Mm-hmm. So I'll be mature enough to say, I've, I'll take more money coming into my pocket, put it over here into an account that I'm going to save up to buy real estate with, mm-hmm. and then you know, figure out either A, they're going to partner with someone or actively do it themselves, but um, you know, figure out some targeted strategies to actually start buying and acquiring and holding mm-hmm. real estate. Yeah. And again, that's something I'm passionate about. I want to help everyone here that works with us to be able to do that. Dude, you're saying your, your goal is 100 millionaires, right? 100 millionaires. Dude, that is not hard. If people would seriously just go out there and buy, and it's time, mm-hmm. but they just buy and hold assets for a long period of time, and the millions happen. Yeah. It, it, it cannot not happen. No, it's impossible for it to not happen. Uh, so you mentioned that realtors are missing out on this opportunity because they're active, uh, what's it, active investors, what do you call it? What's that term? You have to check that box when, you, when you're- Real estate part. professional. Real estate professional. Yep. Can you elaborate on real estate professional? Yeah, the IRS gives special designation to uh, real estate professionals that allow them to take um, depreciation mm-hmm. 100%. So there are some of our clients that are dentists or doctors or lawyers that are active and they don't spend X number of hours in real estate profession. They cannot take, I think they're capped at 25,000 or a certain um, percentage of the uh, paper losses if they were to take depreciation. Mm-hmm. Um, which when you're just doing a single family portfolio is not that big a deal. But when we have investors do on at work on our multifamily syndications, and there might be like a, a 35 or hundred thousand uh, dollar bonus depreciation involved, they cannot get the benefits of that. Really? But with real estate professionals, they could take, you know, a 50 or a hundred thousand dollars and invest it in a multifamily syndication and get bonus depreciation where if you put a hundred thousand in, you're getting a 2.5 multiple back. So you get to write off $250,000 in the same year that you invested a hundred. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of amazing strategies that real estate investors, 
and real estate agents specifically can can that are open to learning about these that they can go play in that space that they're just not utilizing. Yeah. And so I see a bunch of you guys uh, watching here. You know, please fire away your questions because I want to make sure that you know for those of you guys that are watching. Obviously, you guys are real estate investors. Make sure you know, like, take this opportunity to ask uh, Mark any of these questions because I want to, I want to have confidence, or you know, the uh, that you guys have the tools and ability to go out and execute this, right? Like, it's you were saying, right? We're on a mission to create hundred millionaires. Mm-hmm. The best way to create millionaires is for you guys to actually buy and hold real estate. We talk about a lot on the show, on this channel, about how to create active income, but active income is not directly correlated, it's highly correlated, but it's not directly correlated with creating wealth. You got to eventually buy properties to create wealth. You know, I'm sitting here with a, you know, gray hair uh, appearing <laughs> from yeah. the last time I was here, mate. And the one thing that I, t- you said that you had talked about the guy in the room that was talking to you. One thing that I hold true is that I've never met a gray haired lady or gentleman that's in their sixties or seventies that said, I wish I didn't own all that real estate that mm-hmm. I bought 50 years mm-hmm. ago. No, you, you just, Anyone who owns real estate and has held it for a long time mm-hmm. is, has a financial piece that, that most others don't have. It's just a fact. So uh, we had Leon Johnson on the show uh, years ago, and one of the things he said was, my only regret is ever selling any of my properties. Like, that's his only regret. It wasn't this property I bought. I mean, we have our nightmare stories, right? It is yeah. whatever. But we don't regret it. It's just part of our journey. But the ones that we sold, those are the ones that we regret. Yeah. So we sold a, a family home down in, in Florida recently and I sold it for X and um, I looked and thought, yeah, I, I got a really, really good price on it. And then uh, when I looked um, just two years later, mm-hmm. this is post COVID just in two years. So we sold, I think in 2020. And then I just looked at last year, it had gone up by another 30%, the same house. And yeah. I'm thinking, you know, t- to your point, I don't often regret my acquisitions, but I often regret the properties that I've sold and passed on. Yeah. So let's see what else is there. I want to make sure we, we hit this topic before we move on. Uh, I think we I think all my questions asked. Is there anything I didn't ask about this as far as what realtors and investors get wrong? Um, no, I think it's a, yeah, I just, I just firmly believe that um, if, if the agents themselves or wholesalers, investors could, you know, just remember that, you know, take it from an old guy, right? That's been in the game for 20 years. If they, for every house that they flip, they'd hold one or every two houses they flip or every, you know, second wholesale commission they put in and buy another house. Um, just, just plan on it and plan to take that course of action. Work with, and if you don't want to mess with management, make sure you've got a good manager mm-hmm. in place, but they will look back 10 years and just thank this episode. I'll yeah. thank, thank Steve Trang for, uh, and Mark. For, uh, for, yeah, leading them down that road. There's, I've never seen someone lose from mm-hmm. buying and holding real estate. So we got Scott Graff. He's a successful realtor in our market, and he happens to office in here as well. And so we were actually talking this morning, and, uh, we're, and I was saying, man, it's really fortuitous to have this conversation because you and I are going to be talking about this later on. We were talking about when we were younger, we wish we bought more assets, right? So he's acquired assets, I've acquired assets, but it's like when we were younger, we were told, we were instructed by our wiser elders hey, you should buy real estate and hold on to it. And we dismissed it. Mm. So why do you think the younger investors, people are listening to this right now, what are the reasons why they will not take action? I think it's two things. One is finite capital, right? Mm. So they're like, well, I, I only have $10,000 and that's not going to buy a house in Phoenix. Mm. So they don't go and educate themselves on areas where $10,000 might be enough to go you know, buy something. Um, and they, they don't want to have people are 
there aren't many agents or investors that just stockpile cash until so a lot of it is patience and maturity they're not mature enough investors to realize that you know putting 10 grand in the bank you don't need to go invest that now in the stock market you can just wait mm -hmm. until you get to 40,000 and then go buy a quality asset um, and then the other one is just not knowing their options you know not educating themselves enough to know that there are people they can collaborate and partner with to do this for them it's uh, it's the who not how mentality mm -hmm. it's not how can I start investing in real estate but who could I partner with and collaborate with to bring deals to the table where I could successfully invest in real estate um, without the hassles and mistakes that most rookies make? Because yeah. there's a fear associated with it. What if I put all my money in and something goes wrong, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a fear attached to anything that you're doing for the first time. I would just challenge that, you know, partner with someone who's done it before so you don't make the mistakes that, that they made when they were first going. Yeah. You know, I have this sneaky suspicion that you don't care for the stock market. I have very little money in the stock market. <laughs> Correct. Uh, so what are the, like, why should someone not invest in the stock market? Um, look, if I want to go buy $100,000 worth of Google stock, mm -hmm. how much money do I need? About $100,000. If I want to go buy a $100,000 house, Pace Morby would tell you, how much money do you need? Zero. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you can just scale a portfolio better. So look, at the end of the day, if I had, you know, if I was sitting on $20 million, would I go you know, buy all real estate, maybe, maybe not. Mm -hmm. But I think most of us start off in a place where we're trying to scale and grow a portfolio of wealth. And real estate is the safest vehicle, mm -hmm. way more safe than the stock market. Um, and there's a, you know, there's utility. I can't get passive cash flow from the stock market. Mm -hmm. And everyone will say, oh, dividends or this and that. I, I get it. I understand the game. I understand the two variances. But, you know, cash flow is a very real thing. Mm -hmm. And I can't leverage to buy stocks. I can't get massive cash flow, mm -hmm. I have to sell assets in order to gain cash flow from them if I'm going in the stock market direction. Yeah. So I like the appreciation upside, which you can argue the stock market appreciates as well, but they don't allow you to depreciate. So it's mm -hmm. the other three levers. It's scaling with leverage. Mm -hmm. It's the depreciation tax benefits because the government could care less if you invest in the market, but they absolutely want you to provide housing for people. Right. And then lastly, it's the cash flow that in retirement, I can just hold these forever and the one thing we haven't talked about, Steve, is the legacy play. They even give you step-up basis, which is a CPA's or an IRS code that says, if we, when I pass away, when my wife and I, let's say we pass away on the same day, and, and so our heirs are left our assets, their basis, which we can talk and go deep on this if you want to, but their basis steps up. So if my basis, would, through depreciation, I would be depreciating my assets down to zero over a 27 and a half year life, typically mm -hmm. on single family homes. So in 27 and a half years, my basis or what I have in the property on paper value will be zero. So if I were then to sell a portfolio for whatever, a million dollars, then you would be paying 30% of that in tax on the sale. However, if my heirs chose, if I pass away and my heirs receive that same portfolio, the million dollars, their basis comes in at a million dollars. Mm -hmm. So if they turn around and sell that million dollars the same day that they inherited effectively, they would be taxed zero because they're in it for a million. They sold it for a million. So step-up basis is another way that there's life-changing wealth transformation or uh, generational. Uh, generational wealth transferring from one to another to another. So you look at these families that have had truly, you know, the Rockefellers and Vanderbilts and Trumps and all that. It's because they pass the wealth down from generation to generation, and it's not taxed. So they can yeah. scale and grow it, and it's largely through real estate. Yeah, so... That is actually my specific plan, right? Is basis step up, right? Leveraging that. So buying rental properties, keeping them, and then passing them off to my kids yep. 
at full market value as a non-taxable event. So that's if you guys didn't cash that, right? You buy properties, you depreciate it down to zero with the help from the U.S. government, and then you can, you can pass it on to your kids, and they won't have to pay any taxes. Whereas if you pass it off in stocks or cash or any other assets, even gold, They'll have to pay taxes yeah. on the whole thing. And there's currently a limit. I mean, there's a limit up to like $23 million, right? But I mean, if you get to that portfolio, well done. So, <laughs> you know, there, there's limitations, but just Google step-up basis and how it works in real estate and, yeah. and, and they'll, they'll figure it out. Another thing, the reason why I don't particularly care for the stock market, right? So you and I have met a lot of wealthy people who they say, yeah, I mean, it's real estate, obviously. Like, well, <laughs> it's, it's so obvious for them. It's real estate. But how many people do we know? It's like, man, I made all my money in the stock market. There are some. Yeah. There are some, right? But who really gets wealthy in the stock market? The brokers. Yeah. Right? People that are trading. The people that are actively trading your, your stock, right? They get the, was it, asset management, 1% or 2% mm-hmm. right, of the portfolio. So if, if Mark invests a million dollars with me, I will make $20,000 out of 2% every single year in fees. And I just need to, as a stockbroker, have a bunch of marks, right? And just get the 2% from that. And that's, that's my living. So the people that actually make money in the stock market are the brokers. You got it. Yeah. They don't really talk about that so much, right? That's kind of like a little secret. So let's talk about um, the shift in this market. Mm. So I felt an adjustment last year. Did you feel any adjustments last year, 2022? <laughs> yeah, 2022. 22 is my lucky number, um, ironically. And it was a very unlucky year for us. Yeah. Um, you know, we fix and flip a lot of assets. Um, we had scaled aggressively. Um, you know, we are a turnkey provider, as we talked about trying to change someone's uh, generational, provide them generational wealth. So we're selling them done for you rental properties. Mm-hmm. So we, we acquire distressed assets ourselves. We rehab them ourselves. We get them rented out ourselves and we retain the property management. But then once it's a fully rented out turnkey rental property, we sell it to mm-hmm. an investor with their hands up saying, hey, I'd like to build generational wealth. So obviously when we have so much demand, Markets going up and everyone's like, I want more, I want more, I want more. And so we're trying to scale and grow. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we talk about velocity of, of capital and, and trying to get a, an asset from acquisition all the way through the pipeline to get it sold on the back end can take, you know, five or six months. Mm-hmm. And suddenly COVID hit and we were kind of delayed a little bit with material and supply chain and labor going up. And so it kind of was bleeding out to like seven months. Mm-hmm. And then um, our investors, um, when interest rates started skyrocketing, um, you know, July, August of last year, they'd almost doubled from 3% to 6% in a very three or four month period of time. Our investors were then saying, um, hey, let's just, you know, I just want to pause. I want to wait. So we had all this inventory and our investors weren't buying. So yeah, we absolutely felt the shift. And then probably 50% of our inventory was on the turnkey side, like selling to investors. And then the other 50% was retail. So -hmm. now we've got retail, you know, listings that are out there that people are just like, eh, I don't don't think I'm going to buy. And I like to say that there was so much, there was a fervor in the market, you know, call it um, even just a year ago, really in March, April of 2022 it was still everyone wanted to buy, buy, buy. And then all of a sudden um, when August hit retail buyers went away and all of a sudden we were left there with a bunch of assets that we had to sit on. And when you need to sell assets, you've got one lever to pull and that's sales price. Mm-hmm. You just had to drop price, drop price, drop price. So yeah, we felt it for sure. Um, we lost money in, in uh, Q3, Q4, and a lot of assets. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily, we were well-positioned. We saw, you know, didn't see it coming, but we were kind of, I mean, we've been 
we'd been expecting something, right? We'd been preparing for it for years. We're preparing. So we were, you know, obviously financially fine, but it was, um, you don't like losing money on on deals. And Mm -hmm. so you have to really start looking at, you know, the policies and procedures and systems and process you have in place to make sure that we could quickly get these through the pipeline. Yeah. So when the spigot stopped, right? Because the spigot was like on full blast. Yeah. And then it started in March, it started kind of like just, someone started twisting a little bit and then they just shut it off. Yep. How many properties were you holding on to? 147. 147 properties. Yes. That everyone was like, eh, I don't want to buy them. <laughs> well, so, and I was one of those, right? Like, because you and I had a conversation early 2022. It's like, hey, Mark, I need to start reducing my taxes. I need to start acquiring yeah, properties. Yeah. What do you got? Right. And then the market shifted. And at the like, time, we were like, dude, I'm, I'm really sad. I got so many buyers. I don't know if I can even help you. Right. So, no, we got to 147, and I had a lot of very difficult conversations with my CPA, with my coaches, with my, with my team. And we set a goal, okay? And we even made T-shirts. I mean, we were committed to this goal saying, chasing 90. Mm-hmm. Like, no one knew what, like, are you trying to buy 90? I'm like, no. We're are you trying to sell 90? No, we want to sell down to 90 was our big goal. So mm-hmm. by the end of the year, we wanted to go from 147. I think we finally committed to this in about September. So from September to 1231 of 2022, I said, come hell or high water, we are going to be down to 90 assets. Mm-hmm. And my team, we're like solo. Now, again, sell, 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 sell. So clearly it's like sell at all costs, just get it off the books. Because when the market's tanking, you don't know where bottom is. Mm-hmm. So you'd rather trade today on your own terms than retrade down here on someone else's terms and be forced to sell. So we aggressively sold and really, honestly, really proud of the team. Um, that we got down, we beat our goal. We got down to just 77 houses on the books at end of year. And so, and now I think we're down to around 57. Um, mm-hmm. And we're starting, starting obviously now to start buying again and, and fill the pipeline. But um, yeah, so that was uh, a big exercise for us and something I'm very proud of. Yeah. So what organizational changes did you have to make uh, or what business decisions did you need to make in that shifting market? So the first one was sell at all costs. Like, you know, pride goes out the window when you're forced to sell. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't, you know, haggle, negotiate, you know, some now we're paying seller pays and closing costs. You know, it's like, it's so, it's funny how the market has shifted. Like in 2021, someone seller would come to us and a buyer would come to us and say, we want seller paid closing costs. And we'd laugh at them, you know, <laughs> and how far that pension went outrageous. Is. Yes. <laughs> now we're like, hey, we'll buy your mortgage down, you know, and yeah. give you seller paid. So yeah, the market is, we're certainly open to that. Um, we would got creative on the turnkey side. I mean, we had a lot of investors that were still saying, Hey, I, I still want to buy, but the rate's high. Um, what can you do? And so we waived, we were, we did, um, uh, rental guarantees, um, you know, on our properties, making sure that we could get them rented, get them sold quicker. We'd guarantee the rent even before the tenant was in place. Uh, we waived some property management fees. Anyone who bought a property before 1231, we would waive property management fees for a calendar year. Um, so yeah, we got creative because you're looking at an investor's, at, at the uh, pro forma. And the only thing that's really changed, because again, I'm sitting here saying it doesn't matter when you buy real estate. You can buy it even in the upswing, downswing, it doesn't matter. You just got to hold for 20, 30 years. Mm. And our, our investors knew that. So our turnkey stuff, we didn't have a, that difficult of a time getting rid of it as soon as we leveled the playing field by bringing their cap rate up. And we did that by reducing their expenses. Mm-hmm. So the levers we pulled were you know, lease up fee and reduced management fees um, and, and a little bit of decreased price price on it as well. So we just pulled that lever and then it becomes super appealing. They're still buying at a seven cap, which is kind of what our expectations are for our mm-hmm. investor base. Um, and so we did that. The other thing was pivoting. We, we had um, done, we'd pivoted into new construction and the new construction fourplexes and duplexes were a big part of 
our mindset for um, you know 2022 and 23. And although got, they got delayed in 22 and pushed into 23, um, that was a big pivot because they have been very, very popular and we're able to um, pre-sell some of those. So mm-hmm. that helped us in the interim as well. Um, we, we did a little restructuring. I think we had to lay off five people, which I'm not proud of. Um, but you know that's part of sitting in the CEO's seat is you have to worry about all 30 employees, not just the one that you're laying off, right? Yeah. It's like in the best interest of the company um, to do so. And for the first time ever, and this is a credit to the culture we have built, like we've, we could go deep on culture, actually. It's um, our, our commitment to culture and team building, everything is so strong that I, <laughs> the people that I actually laid off thanked me for the time they'd spent oh, wow. in the business, which I had never had that happen before. Like say, hey, you know, obviously it's sensitive topic and we're coming, pull you in and hey, so sorry, you know, I've got to make some difficult decisions right now. And they said, mm-hmm. hey, thank you so much for, I've learned so much and, and thank you. And it was like, wow, that really hits you when you're, you know, creating their worst day that they've had in, in, mm-hmm. a, in some time and they thank you for it. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's a powerful testament uh, to all that. So down to, you said 77 assets. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate you sharing this, right? Cause like, there's not a lot of people talking about the challenges, right? It's like, no, you got to double down marketing. You got to do this. You got to do that. So I appreciate you. Uh, oh, that was the other pivot. So to get down from 147 down to 77, we had to stop buying, mm-hmm. which is not fun because when you're, a, when you're making money on, ac- on assets that you're fixing and flipping, if you mm-hmm. shut off the faucet here, you suddenly have, you're, you're effectively killing revenue in five or six months' time. Yeah. And we shut down for November and December and didn't buy anything. And so, you know, come June, July, there's going to be revenue that is no longer coming into the company on our fix and flip side. So again, blessed that we made some smart decisions, a financially stable through dry powder in the bank, but also um, investing in a different asset class, which was the new construction multifamily. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the benefit of dropping the millions of dollars from that revenue in the summertime will get us through this, this awkwardness in the moment. And I also, we cut advertising um, for that period as well. So there were some big moves there just to make sure that we, we right-sized and focused on the right thing. But I think any, anyone who's not looking at their bottom line right now with uh, some serious uh, um, consternation needs to, you know, be kind of checking their, checking their look in the mirror. Yeah. And then, uh, so you guys are buying again. Yep. And you guys are back to being the biggest buyer in the KC market. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair to say. I mean, there are people that might wholesale a few more properties than us. But as far as someone who's fixing and flipping, I don't know anyone that's doing more volume than us. But we are going to dumb it down. We got up to where, you know, we're doing a couple hundred a year, and that was stressful. And what I'm realizing now is that we put way too much strain on our rehab team mm-hmm. and the contractors involved and um, just assumed that, you know, if we were averaging five and a half months, we could double volume and still stay at five and a half months of construction, and that's just not how it works. So um, we're now probably going to just cycle back down to just doing 10 or 12 a month and, and, and call it good. So 100 to 120 houses a year. Only 10, 12 a month. No big deal. <laughs> So um, I want to get to the audience's questions. And right before we do that, we're going to do a very, very quick commercial. These eight steps are why I was able to build a sales floor that produced over $20 million annually in wholesale profits. If you take and embrace these same steps, I know for a fact it's going to work in your organization too. Now, we only have 30 seats available in this classroom. I can't work with everybody. This is super personalized and super custom to your organization. I will personally work with each and every one of you to craft 
the language, the culture, the KPIs, the 15th and 30 day protocols, and help you go home with a toolbox for leadership that is going to drive results. I hope that you can take advantage of this opportunity. During this two day workshop, I'm gonna be going over these eight steps and so much more that I didn't even have time to mention in this video. I'm gonna personally sit down with you on a one-in-one -one basis and make sure that you have the tools that are gonna get you success. This sales leadership program has a money back guarantee. If you don't see improvement in your revenue numbers, improvement in culture, improvement in accountability, we personally guarantee to refund the full amount of your payment. All right. So the first question uh, on YouTube, B Fleet, uh, interest rate dropped not by much. How do you see any markets changing coming or do you see a decrease still? So I guess w uh, we're asking you to look yep. into the crystal ball here. Yeah, yeah, happy to. I mean, that's just my opinion, but I mean, that's what he's asking, right? I mean, no one knows, but um, I believe we're going to have a really strong month of sales. We're even seeing, um, because we have our pulse on the market on the retail side, we're still actively buying and selling. Um, we have about 20 active listings on the market and we're getting multiple showings again, not multiple offers as often, um, although that occasionally is happening, but we're getting a lot of show showing activities picked up. It was dead for um, October and November were just dead. Mm -hmm. December picked back up a little bit. We were blessed with a pretty decent um, winter in January where it wasn't too bad and we started selling product and we're really seeing it pick up. I believe March through July will be a strong retail um, side, but after July, I do anticipate it probably falling off again a little bit. Mm -hmm. I'm not bullish on, um, you know, November, December of 23. What do you, um, what, I think that, what is the cause for that? Um, I just think um, there'll be more, I think more people will put their houses on the market. Right now there's still such low inventory mm -hmm. um, that when your house is on the market, you know, you're getting any eyeballs that are on it will, will go. But I think that, you know, we are very cyclical in Kansas City. Winter, uh, the, the months of December and January are our slowest. And we really haven't had a slow winter for a long time. It hasn't built back up. You look at like a pendulum, um, you know, the normal amount of housing on the market is, is five months. And in 2014, it bottomed out and got to about 11 months of inventory on the market. In 2014, when all of the craziness was... That was the slowest you guys ever got. What's that? 11 months of inventory on the market? That's the slowest you guys ever... I mean, over here, we got to like three years of inventory. <laughs> wow. Yeah, no, it was about 11 months of inventory on the market, I believe, was, was, a, was where we pushed out. Um, and now we're still back to about 1.7 we, we got to about, you know, 0.7 months of inventory mm -hmm. in the three weeks. Now we're about back to 1.7 or two months of inventory in the market. Yeah, so you still have low inventory. Yeah. So it's still low inventory. So I'm feeling bullish, but it, it has to just keep bleeding. Mm -hmm. Now I think, you know, as far as, so market will definitely be depressed a little bit more as more inventory comes on the market. Mm -hmm. Um, it'll be harder to sell, but that's why I think the attention to detail we've actually brought on and, in, uh, we've brought on a consultant who goes to every single one of our flips. With an in, as an interior designer, mm -hmm. just to give us a little bit of flair. I think we had gotten, when we started looking internally at what our weaknesses are, I think we realized that, you know, just the standard package of rehab was not going to cut it anymore. Mm -hmm. We needed to establish ourselves to be the pre, premier house flipper. Yeah. Um, and again, we don't do million dollar flips, so we're certainly not going super, super high end. But in that range from 200 to 500,000 in Kansas City, we offer a really good product. Mm -hmm. And that's what we got back to was... Um, elevating ourselves beyond what we found that everyone started copying us. Mm -hmm. And so we suddenly look at all these flips and like, Oh, that looks like one of ours. Hey, it wasn't what's going on. Mm -hmm. So once we saw that, um, you know, imitation is a great form of flattery, but we needed to raise our game. So now we're going back and keeping up with the trends and doing a few different things, you know, putting using wallpaper again, we're doing accent walls um, with some 
um, trim carpentry and those kind of things to elevate and even on like a 300,000 old house. All right. Got it. Uh, follow up question is, do you happen to know if Illinois has any restrictions on wholesaling real estate? I don't think anywhere has whole. No, I don't. I think you can always, you can wholesale in every market. I'm pretty sure. Um, again, not a huge wholesale. It's probably a question that you could answer. Yeah, I would say Illinois, you just have to be a licensed realtor to wholesale in Illinois, which is a really silly rule. Um, but yeah, so in Illinois, the restriction, Illinois and Oklahoma, you have to be a licensed realtor. Um, do you buy in Florida or, or Illinois? Um, we just pulled out of Illinois. We were there for a while. We found that the bureaucratic red tape mm-hmm. was just for a fix and flipper was, was too much for us to bear. And mm-hmm. we started getting our rehab pipeline just got, you know, um, extremely bloated, um, just sitting on waiting for them to act. So we pulled out of there. Um, and no, Florida is a market that we have been in. We took advantage of a real, when it bottomed out in 13, 14, 15, we started going and buying and flipping down there. So we mm-hmm. still have a couple of rentals and uh, some short-term rentals down there, but we're not actively buying. Yeah. We but we know call- a lot of people that are. They want to throw us a lead, right? Yeah, you and, there you go. You and I got a lot of friends down there. We should call it bureaucratic blue tape. Um, yes, exactly. Stop calling it red tape. Uh, do you purchase properties with cash or do you do creative deals? Um, but, but cash is the answer to that. Um, but I'm also, we have strong banking relationships. So mm-hmm. one of the strengths of our operation is that we have been working with our banking partners so long that um, unless it's a quick, you know, well, everyone's like cash closed quickly in a week. And, and most, most of the time you realize people don't want to close in a week. They're like, hey, give me time to pack up my stuff. So most of the time we're closing an average of three to four weeks. Mm-hmm. And that gives us time to um, go to the title company, go to the bank. And we're closing with just 10% down and, and mm-hmm. the bank financing the balance and then getting our construction loans in place to turn around. So cash, but the bank financing is a, is a big part of it. We haven't gone big on creative, but that's, um, you know, when Pace came and talked to us, it's certainly a takeaway that we need to think more about and we're going to be offering more seller solutions mm-hmm. um you know we just had a a seller um in my office on monday that was talking about um, a fourplex that he owned and the big thing for him was he just didn't want to pay anything a tax had a strong aversion to paying any tax and he owed he was his basis was zero because he'd held it for 20 years and he has a fourplex that's in decent shape and so i proposed to him hey sell a finance opportunity and mm-hmm. he's open to that so now we've just got to go back with some options so um you know just trying to if you have five or six different options for a way a seller can exit their property mm-hmm. rather than just, I'll pay you X, take it or leave it. I think you're going to win more in the living room. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that uh, Eddie Speed and I are working on together is how to switch to uh, creative if cash isn't working. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for us and our, our order of offers, right, is a cash deal where we'll buy it, a wholesale deal, innovations deal, mm-hmm. creative deal. And then if none of those things work, Referral to a realtor. Yeah, you got it. No, that's it. And yeah. I think everyone should be pivoting to that model. That's yeah. very, very strong. And that's common across the industry right now with the people that I'm talking to is just you've got to provide multiple um, sales strategies for yeah. them when you go into the living room. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Jonathan Asbel wants to know on Facebook, what are you doing to systemize your fix and flip? So if you can go just a little bit more detail on how you're doing that exactly. Um, so specifically the construction side. Uh, well, it says fix and flip. Yeah. So, so my goodness, um, the fix and flip really is is all about construction, and we are, uh, you know, there's an old there's a book and an old saying, measure what matters. Mm-hmm. So we're measuring everything from um, acquisition to uh, trash out, from tra- or acquisition to to keys, from keys to trash out, from trash out to the first bid, to bid getting submitted to bid approved. Like literally every step along the way is getting measured in days and getting kind of a red, yellow, green. If it's off track, we get a red. 
and then tracking each one. So measuring every little step and putting parameters along the way so, I can, so we can get alerted when something is falling out of, out of track because for a long time we weren't measuring it and suddenly we'd look back and be like, wait, why, why is this house just coming to now? I remember walking this five months ago. Yeah. You know, why is it just now coming you know, on, on market? So if you don't watch it and you're not, and then the other thing is just purely managed by walking about. You've got to get out on the job site. You've got to have your project managers um, you know, on the jobs, making decisions in real time. If you mm-hmm. leave it to um, the contractors to make decisions, um, then you know, you're uh, probably going to, to be up, um, up a creek. Mm-hmm. The other thing we're doing, Steve, is we've had an outage. Yeah. Um, the other thing we're doing is um, systematizing by SKUs. So I think if you go to, um, uh, what is our website? sbdcontractor.com. I think it has literally every SKU that we have and every product um, that we put in a house for our turnkey product and for our flip product. Mm-hmm. Um, so that being said, they can simply go on there and we provide them um, a very easy solution, either at Lowe's or Home Depot, whichever our contractor wants to use. They have specific SKUs for a faucet, for a, a vanity, for a countertop, for you know flooring. So you have to make it very easy for the contractor to to be able to give us a bid and, and get that bid approved and then, and then hold them accountable. And then the other thing is having penalties for delays. Mm-hmm. So we have an accountability meeting each week that our director of construction runs with our different contractors where they come into the office, we sit down and we talk through, are you on track or off track? Mm-hmm. And well, you're, because you know, sometimes we'll get, well, your flooring guys didn't show up. Okay, well, how many de- days did that delay you? Well, mm-hmm. that would delay us two days. Okay, then there are two excused days, like an excused absence. Mm-hmm. So there are two excused days, but we let them pick their completion date. And if they don't hit their completion date, it's a $200 a day penalty. Because, and then again, if it, if it goes out by two days and there were two days excused, then there's no penalty. But if they missed by 20 days and only 10 days are excused, then they'd be paying us, you know, equivalent of uh, $2,000 on the yeah. back end. So holding our contractors accountable, putting measurements in place. You're not trying to penalize them. You're just trying to say, hey, if things drag, especially when the market's going like this, it's right. costing us way more than $200 a day, not just with the carrying costs and the interest and the consternation that we have to go in and, and start you know, applying more and more of our time and effort and energy around the yeah, actual babysitting getting it. the house and babysitting it. And then it's going to sell for less because we're taking you know, to longer and the market might be going down. So we went back and looked and, and it's been, since we've implemented that, it's gotten a lot better. That's awesome. You know, I have people ask me all the time, Steve, why don't you flip? And my answer has always been, I don't, I don't need any more people to manage. <laughs> it's not a requirement. It's like anything. If you want to be good at it, you've got to measure it, track it, and then hold people accountable. And yeah. you've, you've got to have people that are, that are doing that on a, on a regular basis in the construction field. Right. But I'm saying, like, that's just one more thing I got to do. It's like, yeah, ah, no. I, I'm good here. Yeah. So you mentioned a book, Measure What Matters. So not a lot of people talk about the book. They talk about, you know, um, traction, they talk about uh, the four disciplines of execution, mm-hmm. right? There's all sorts of different books. Why measure what matters? It was, I mean, well done on the title. Um, I, it, you yeah, know, I'm always well in, done on the title. Yeah, I'm, I'm always, um, I don't know if that one was referred to me if I picked it up off a shelf, but I mean, when, the, when I saw it, I think that was one I'm just, I think it might've even been a Barnes and Noble. Hey, you like this book. What about this book, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, or on Amazon. So yeah, I pulled it, read it. Um, and it, it's just, it was just, if you care about the number, it said two things. If you care about the number, measure it. Mm-hmm. And then if you're measuring something that you, if you're given a report and you don't read it, then you shouldn't be measuring it anyway. Don't, don't dump a whole bunch of KPIs on your team if they're mm-hmm. not really applicable to you. Like have them measure only what matters. So mm-hmm. it's 
sometimes we just get so dragged bogged down in the minutia mm-hmm. that we have our employees creating reports to give to us and then you don't even read them anyway. So yeah. I think fewer metrics and ones that actually matter um, are the key takeaways from that book. Yeah, I can't remember exactly who wrote it, but Google runs their business by measure what matters are OKRs, right? So Google runs their business that way. And this is all out of the brainchild from uh, Andy Grove, one of the mm-hmm. founders of Intel. So uh, we haven't implemented a lot of it. It was a, va- it was a very fascinating book, right, for business concepts. But, you know, we already have our existing processes and structures. I'm not saying that they're, uh, like, we can't change them. It's just, it's, it's a little bit of a different philosophy style. I was just curious as yeah. to, uh, to how that came up. Um, uh, a follow-up question from Jonathan Asbel. Uh, what assets do you believe are in for a major fall? So there's some danger with short-term people are becoming um, short-term rentals are here to stay. Airbnb, uh, Vacasa, you know, all the big boys are, um, they, they've hit a niche because I enjoy traveling and staying in a home, even especially with another family. If we go rather than staying in a hotel, just yeah. it's a better feel. You have, you know, your own privacy, that kind of thing. So they're here to stay. However, there could be a crash with legislating out short-term rentals in certain areas. Um, they're kicking up a fuss. And so that's something that I would be very cautious of if people are buying in an area and then suddenly short-term rentals are either outlawed or no longer available, that will be a big dip. Um, I think, um, in general, I think there'll be a haircut across the board with, um, uh, you know, the, the fervor that was in the market. Um, let's say you had a house that was going to go on the market for $300,000. You get multiple offers and you'd end up selling for three thirty. I think we've leveled off. Like it's not so much that the market's gone down 10%. I just think the fervor of Multiple offers, highest and best, and you have to pay more is gone. Wholesaling for full market value. It's crazy, right? Okay. So I think there's a correction that's taking place, but I I'm not not betting on real estate. I don't necessarily think that, um, you know, the answer to his question clearly is, you know, the, the stuff in the, you know, 700 plus range, right? That's always the first to feel it. Um, but where we're at in Kansas City, I mean, our market swings up and down are so even keeled anyway that we're really not concerned about the price of it. Um, but having said that, I think there's opportunities with rental assets because you are going to have stronger appreciation with fewer buyers coming into the market on a uh, retail side. They're going to have to rent either longer mm-hmm. or um, move into renting. And so I think there's opportunities with, um, you know, new construction rentals, you know, really high quality rental homes will be an area for improvement. Um, and then new construction single family is probably going to take a hit as well when you People that are building new oh, construction, single family um, with rates, you know, remaining high. It's just hard for someone to go and chunk down, you know, $400,000 for a smaller home than they can go get a used one for the same, same thing. Right. Uh, Chief Keith wants to know, uh, what is your biggest regret in real estate? Um, you know, everything happens for a reason. So I can't, I, I wouldn't even say the business divorce was my biggest regret. Um, that spurred me on to, uh, to different topics. Um, you know, there's some people not growing as an individual. I think if I was to self-reflect, I think I could have grown as a leader of men um, and women um, earlier in my career and invested more in myself um, because I think there was some turmoil. You know, I, you know, as a small entrepreneur, um, a small business owner and entrepreneur back in the, um, in the day, I, I didn't, you're, you're just, you're hustling and grinding. And the thing I didn't realize was that your employees are never going to hustle and grind and care about a company the same way you do. They care but they never care like you do. And you have mm-hmm. to respect that once you reach a certain point, probably, you know, north of six or seven employees, like you work for them now. Mm-hmm. 
And I think realizing that sooner, like investing in, 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 and I read books on business and scaling and growing, but I didn't really invest in myself and becoming a better leader of men and women. And that's probably a regret that I have. I think I would have accelerated my company's learning curve and, and avoided some of the layoffs that I had to, to do. Um, what I've done well, I would answer that question also by saying, I feel like what I've done well recently is hired super talented people. Like our team right now is you know, really, really elevated um, to the point where, you know, truly they know more about their position than I do. I mean, mm -hmm. these are people that are um, highly qualified in each of their craft, whether it be finance or marketing or acquisitions or property management um, in all capacities, they're, they're operating at a really high level. And so probably my biggest regret would be have, you know, when you're a small business owner, you tend to just say, I have a budget of $60,000 to bring on a new, you know, acquisitions agent or mm -hmm. whatever, or whatever is a marketing person. We're not realizing that for 70 grand, you could get someone that's way more talented, holds himself accountable more, is going to be a better team member. Mm -hmm. And you won't have to fire that person. You're going to only pay 64 when they want to leave and get what they're really worth down the road. So, you know, I think anyone who's scaling and growing a company should take a strong look at the value that a, a truly talented uh, team member can bring to the table. Because when you pay for talent, mm -hmm. you can step out of the, the role a little bit sooner and they will elevate and allow you to go focus on what your uh, core competencies are yeah. along the way. Uh, earlier in the show, you were talking about culture. You, you know, we can have a total deep dive about culture. Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts on, you know, uh, what, what, what about culture are you, are, are you most passionate about? You know, everyone wants to have a, a place where they do enjoy coming to work every day. Um, I think I was unable to provide that before I hired my COO mm -hmm. because I didn't realize that people actually want to be held accountable. And I am lousy at that. That is one of my, um, you know, kryptonites. You and me both. Just, just not, I mean, I, I walk into a room, I say, this is what we should, you know, do we all agree this is the right thing to do? Okay, great, go do it. And then I walk out and assume <laughs> that everyone's going to get it done. Well, now I walk out of the room, Chris Johns is still there like, okay, takeaways, you do this and you do that. And what were you going to do? And do you remember what you were meant to do? And <laughs> And then let's write that down. Let's put it in planner and tasks and, and make sure that everyone's on the same page. And, and then we're going to meet back next week and make sure we've got these tasks lined up. I'm like, oh, so that's how you become a high-functioning uh, you know, office. So, yeah, our partnership between Chris and I has um, really benefited um, the company because there's, you know, you've got to have the visionary and the vision um, you know, and someone that's creating big ideas, coming up with big ideas and creating big relationships and, and avenues to grow. In fact, as I said earlier, I mean, if we didn't have the multifamily new construction, we would be in a very difficult position right now. But that's an area where I saw growth and we went and tackled that. Um, but to have someone behind the scenes that's um, working tirelessly to create an environment where people can um, grow and learn and become the best, vision, best versions of themselves, I think um, would be very valuable. And the other thing is really investing and in getting to know the people that you're working with. Um, yeah. You know, it's the little things, you know, we um, have gone to Royals games together. We've gone um, curling together, like on the ice. Um, it was a great Chris company Christmas party. We've had the ice cream truck come to the office. We've had pancake breakfast. You know, you've, when you're spending that much time together, you've got to get to know people. And I think you would, um, I think people in our base, well, you've heard of NPS? Yeah, Net Promoter Score. Yep. Okay, so Net Promoter Score for those out there. It's basically a way to, to gauge how well you are doing typically with your customers or but there's ENPS, which is an employee net promoter score, which gauges how well you are doing as a company. And it's all anonymous, so everyone can be very transparent. So when we first did our survey, 
um, we got a 71, which is off the charts amazing. Anything north of 70 is exceptional. Mm -hmm. And that, but they said the one thing we want was health, uh, health insurance, health insurance, because we didn't offer health insurance as a company benefit. So we added that last year, despite obviously all we were going through as a benefit. Um, and you know, the other thing was merch. We learned, you know, that, Hey, we'd like a little bit more work, merch, no worries. So now we, you know, provide them a t-shirt every quarter, mm -hmm. like chasing 90 or, you know, whatever the theme might be, we're giving them a little bit of merch and it's those things that are, that provide, you know, a way for them to feel like they're part of a team. And we are now proud to say that we raised it. To, we're a 91 on the EMPS out of 30 employees. Wow. 91. I think there was like two people, there was no detractors and there was, um, there were some neutrals and then I think nine out of 10 were obviously in the promoters. So super strong, um, you know, culture at the office. And again, I take very little credit because it's not me that's changed, but it's the team that has rallied. And, um, you know, we, we put people in positions to actually be culture warriors for yeah. us to build that amongst the people and hiring the right people, right people, right seat um, yeah. has been a big part of it. So there's something you said, a small part of it, you just kind of breeze through it was same page, right? And Chris is, Chris Johns, right, who's also been on the show, he talks about, you know, um, you know what you're going to do, when it's going to be done by this and that, right, putting on the planner. But that part you said about the same page, mm -hmm. where I struggle the most as a visionary, is like, here's what I want. And for the longest time, what I said I wanted and what they heard were not the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not great at this, but I'm getting a little bit better, right? So now we're talking about, like, you know, here's what I want, here's why it's important, here's when I like it, here's when I like to have it done by. And uh, what questions do you need me to answer before you proceed to get this done, right? So I'm not great at this, but so I'm getting slowly better at it. One of the ways we've, we, one of the things we've implemented in the last, uh, last 12 months, you know, because people want clarity in their position, is the one-page strategic plan, mm -hmm. the OPSP that came out of uh, Daniel Marcos's, you know, coaching that, that I've done with him. And the importance of having, so on the OPSP, it's literally one page, and it has your core values, which obviously, and your BHAG, it has your uh, annual goals, your the company's annual goals, company's quarterly goals. And then the, the lower third of the paper is for their metrics and their KPIs what are they, and their goals for the next 90 days. And every 90 days, they review it, they talk about it with the manager, and they make sure everyone, they have a plan. So it's very simple. They know if they do these three things and hit these three metrics, mm -hmm. that they're winning. You know, it's, you talked about 4DS, you know, uh, Chris McChesney's book, The Four Disciplines of Execution. Mm -hmm. He says, give your employees a winnable game and then just keep score. Yeah. So if you give your employees a winnable game and then have a scoreboard, you know, LeBron would not be driving down, you know, the, to, to lay up for two if they needed three to win. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got to have a scoreboard to know where you're at in the game. Right. So give your employees a, a scoreboard or give your employees a winnable game. So show what we want to get done and then just, just document it through metrics to, to see where they are on track or not. Uh, that's a really, really, really great plan. Uh, great point. And you know, talking about Daniel Marcos, he was on the show um, in November, right? So a few months ago. Uh, and man, like what? What a story that guy's had. He's a beast. Love my yeah. time with Daniel. Yeah. And uh, we were talking about something. And we were talking about uh, irrational confidence. I think, or no, it wasn't that. It was, we were talking about infinite risk tolerance. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I told him, I don't think there's any person I've met in my life that's had like a higher risk tolerance than myself. He's like, <laughs> that's uh, so one of the things that Dan so Daniel uh, is, is, is my coach and, uh, and love him dearly. One of the people, obviously one of the people I reached out to when um, you know, everything was tanking and, 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 and things just weren't selling. And I'm like, Hey, just, you know, on our weekly call, I'm like, well, monthly call. I'm like, what do I do here? 
Um, and one of the things that he said to me that I will always remember is, Mark, there are times for a CEO to be uh, watching what is going on. And there are times for a CEO to jump in and start working on the business. Roll up your sleeves. The next two years for real estate, you're going to have to work in the business. Mm -hmm. Like everyone wants to work on their business and this and that. He's mm -hmm. like, no, 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 no. You know, there's, you know, there's times for you when stuff is smooth sailing, you can tweak and, and go do this and work on bigger projects. Now's the time to roll your sleeves up, get stuck back in into the minutia. Uh, everyone wants a self-operating business, mm -hmm. but until it becomes, until it is self-operating, you got to get in there and operate. And, you know, when there are, you know, when there's unfortunately a few layoffs, I think we laid off four or five people, as I said, back in October, you know, that, that there's a little disruption in the org. You got to make sure that people have a clear vision. So preach your vision daily. We have more, we're big morning huddle people. That was another um, culture thing. We have a daily morning huddle, 837 every single morning um, that everyone is on and, and talking about their wins and things that they're doing in the business. Um, that's been a big part of people getting to know each other because they can say personal wins as well as a business win. Mm -hmm. So you get to know the people. Um, but yeah, that was a big wake up call when he said, jump into the business and start working on it. Yeah. And, uh, he, he's gone through adversity. He's seen a lot. So, uh, I, I think, I, I think that's awesome. And, you know, it was interesting when he was in here, he was like, yeah, you guys talking about like doubling down and trying to conquer and, <laughs> and, and seize market share right now. Like you guys are talking about 2020 and, and in 2022 and maybe 2023. It's like, you guys are too short sighted. <laughs> You gotta be ready for 2024. It's like that's that's a long thinking, right? Uh, yeah. Business owner. And the other thing too, talking about you know rolling your sleeves up, is that something Ren Bartlett and I, you know, uh, mostly Ren Bartlett talks about is like there's wartime CEO mm -hmm. and there's peacetime CEO. I've been a pretty good time, uh, pretty decent peacetime CEO. I was a pretty good wartime operator, but I've never had to be a wartime CEO because yeah. when things things were tough last time, I was in the field. I was I was the boots on the ground. So. This is a whole different world. Yeah, and I think in the wartime CEOs, what they do is they, they keep preaching the same message. Mm -hmm. They give their troops um, stability through um, a, a clear vision of what you're going to do to get them through this time. One of the big messages that I sent to my team was, hey, guys, I've been here before. I've been in 20 years. I'm glad that this is not our first radio. Mm -hmm. We got through 08, 09. I've seen market cycles. We've prepared for this. You know, we've got dry powder in the bank. We understand this is how we're going to succeed. This is what I need you to do. Now go do, mm -hmm. you know, so you give them a clear vision of what's going to happen. I think it, it you know, it, again, everyone, you know, I'm not saying that there's not any concern in, in, in the markets, but, yeah. um, you know, we, we at least had a plan and we kept directing people towards that plan. Yeah. I like that. And we actually have Lena in my organization and she, she said to me, it's like, Steve, how are you so freaking positive all the time? I was like, uh, a, you're the only person on the planet that thinks I'm a positive person. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and B I've got perspective. Like I said, you know, I, started you know, in 2007 yeah i got to witness the last crash you know and like uh being friends or colleagues with people that were going to work and the doors were chained shut because the doors were permanently closed not by their own decision but by the landlord because they couldn't pay their bills mm. right like i mean you hear stories of this yeah. but i knew the people that went through it you know i knew the people that were getting divorced, whether they were realtors or contractors, money was bad in 2007 through yeah. 2009. And when money's bad, you know what the next thing is, Yep. right? So I was, saying, uh, I was just sharing with her, I was like, yeah, I'm not a positive person. It's just, this is nothing compared to what I've gone through before. Yeah. All right, so we got some more questions in here. Um, so we're talking about biggest written real estate. Uh, what is 
So if real estate was not an option, what other industry or business would you be in? Real estate was not an option. God, uh, isn't it sad? I've really not given that much thought. Um, or that's a great thing because real estate's well, been good. So I think what we do, what I do well, I think I give people um, options to invest their capital. So and and um, so real estate um, is the vehicle. But I, but if I wasn't like fixing flipping, I'd probably go to some medium where. Um, call it a real estate financial advisor, um, but some mechanism, you know, where I enjoy, I know that there is um, a lot of wealth there that is untagged, untapped right now, where people are um, just putting in their money in the markets just because they don't have any other options. So I do feel passionate, and I know it's not answering the question because I guess it's real estate, but uh, it certainly would be pivoting to a different direction than where I currently am, but just advising people, mm. you know, of, ways to avoid just that trap of just putting money into the stock market, giving them other options and alternatives. Cause um, it could be lending. It could be funds and syndications. There's many, many areas um, to do private lending deals or things like that, that are fringe real estate. Um, but you know, outside of the fix and flip game, I think I'd be trying to open up and, and just, I've realized that, you know, and David Phelps is so great at it. Right. And he's a mentor of mine, but collaboration, the who, not how is something big that really came to me probably yeah. later in life. Not how can I build wealth or how can I fix this problem, but who could I collaborate with to help me build wealth? Who could I um, bring on board to help me solve this problem? And I think you start just creating partnerships and strategic alliances and, mm -hmm. you know, opportunities abound. You know, we, we, on this podcast and other shows we have on this channel, we talk about how, you know, potentially college can be a bit of a scam, a little scammy, yeah. right? I think stock market is like that last step, right? It's that you go to school, get good grades, right? Go get a job. And, and there's nothing wrong with that path so long as you select that path. You got to opt into that path. Don't default into that path, right? And so you go get a job. And then the last thing is the last step, I think, of that, you know, forced uh, uh, indoctrination is stock market. Yeah. Right. So, no, you're right. And I mean, college is one of those things that we're looking at now. And I've just been very clear with my, my children as to what I view college, which is, if you're unsure, because you're still maturing, you're still growing, you don't, if you don't have a clear path of what you want to do, it's a great way to go and um, learn and network and grow as an individual. It's so a good default path. It's a good default path. Um, I'm a big fan of an, an, what in New Zealand we call an OE, um, an overseas experience. Um, you know, obviously, growing up in New Zealand um, is very, very different. We are such a small country that you're automatically looking rest of the world what's going on. I think it's the opposite. Because America is so big, most people are like, well, I don't need to go. If I want to go to a beach, I go to California or Florida. If I want to go to the mountains, I go to Colorado. Like, what? I don't need to travel to the Swiss yeah. Alps, or I don't need to go to Tahiti to go on a beach. Um, but in New Zealand, you're just always looking outward because we're such a small nation. It's kind mm -hmm. of like little brother syndrome. And so in that same way, I would challenge that taking a year off and exploring the rest of the world and going, seeing what there is to offer, you've just got to mature into who you want to be when you grow up. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm encouraging my children that, college is to network and grow your friends because um your network oftentimes is the equivalent to your net worth and mm -hmm. if you can grow to grow your net worth there's a lot of times it's just uh utilizing and growing and befriending your network yeah you know uh mike stansbury he's a yes. cg yes, member yes, yes. right so we were doing the call earlier whale club paul sparks and i were doing that call and um i liked what he had to say was that you know the rules for setting up his business one lens he looks at his business in 
is am I creating this business in a way that if I, I can sell it if I were so inclined, that's one lens. The other lens is am I creating a business that my children may be interested in opting in to join me? Not forcing them mm -hmm. to join him, but am I creating a business where my kids can opt in and want to work with me if that was the direction they wanted to go to? It's like, that's pretty cool, yeah. right? Am I building a business where my kids, if they wanted to, can join me? No doubt. Um, all right, so uh, this is uh, another question from the audience. It's our good friend Eric Martin here. Hey, uh, Eric. So wh wh who do you got? Chiefs or Eagles? <laughs> well, hey, the, look at the look at the theme. We put the red on for the Chiefs, right? Oh man, no, I'm super excited. You know, it's kind of a little strange for me to be here uh, in Phoenix with the Waste Management Phoenix Open. You know, I'm a big golfer and the Super Bowl, and I'm going to neither. But um, blessed to be here with you. Why wouldn't you go to either? You should just stick around. Well, I've uh, got <laughs> obligations this weekend. Uh, we're actually heading out to meet a lot of our friends at the Freedom Founders Mastermind event this weekend. So mm -hmm. I'm excited. But no, Chiefs. Uh, let me let me throw a prediction out there. I believe the Chiefs was kind of eked by like by two or three points in most of their games, and they just find a way to win. Mm -hmm. I think they're due to have a blowout. So I think they're going to win by ten. Go Chiefs. Blowout. Ten? I'm saying we're gonna go blah. Like let's go four touchdowns. <laughs> Don't think we'll get there. No, super respect. I mean, it's gonna be an awesome game. I can't yeah. wait. All right, and then a question from Martin Nadirsha: uh, Multifamily is easier or more difficult heading into the future? That's fairly vague. What mm -hmm. do you mean more difficult? You think? Uh, I think probably to find deals to invest in. You I think know, in general, like I think that how I would comment there is that. Um, Wall Street is firmly entrenched in Main Street. Like mm -hmm. the, the fact that Wall Street has started investing in single family homes in a very meaningful way, and we haven't gone down this path, it's probably another episode, but um, it, it's a massive impact. Mm -hmm. And um, they're insatiable in their appetite for more. They will not go away. People that think this is just a, you know, a one-off are completely wrong. They, in the same way that Lowe's and Home Depot are now like 77% market share in the hardware space, whereas you go back 50 years and it would have been you know, Mr. Smith on the hardware store on the corner, like they're just gone. Like mm -hmm. now, and in the same way, I think Mr. And Mrs. Smith landlords are going to be gone there because they're gobbling up all the inventory. Yeah. And there'll be a time where there'll be a Lowe's and Home Depot, if you will allow me the analogy of landlording. Mm -hmm. And they will own so many single family rentals that they will um, just dominate the space. So Wall Street coming in, taking advantage of single family in the same way that they have kind of done multifamily. Yeah, I think real estate's going to be harder to, to find deals. But the encouragement I would give your audience is that you, it, it's, a, it's a nimble and a very inefficient business, right? You can't trade it um, instantaneously like you can on the stock market, mm -hmm. right? So the inefficiencies of um, trading allow for opportunity. And so when it takes 30 or 60 days to sell an asset, that's time and opportunity for someone to go and get a deal. Mm -hmm. When there's local operators that know a market that can go in and snag up a deal because they've just driven by it many times and they go knock on the door of the owner, there's opportunity there because it's not always just at a certain strike price and you know exactly the current market value. Value is determined by uh, utility as well as current market value. Can you use it for something and, and what is it worth to different people? So there'll always be opportunities. Um, but yeah, it's gonna continue to get more and more challenging in the single family spaces. Wall Street firmly gets their, their hands on it. Yeah, it's kind of like you were saying with the local store, like it's just like when Walmart would go into town or I guess these days Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> it's going online. Uh, so one thing you and I were talking about offline before we started the show was your superpower, <laughs> right? So talk about, talk, talk to me about your, your superpower. Well, I know, um, that you ask it every time. So I was just, I was contemplating, you know, what, what is my superpower? And 
you know, I think about that and you think about superheroes, you know, that have a superpower, they're born with it. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe my greatest superpower was my parents and my upbringing because it afforded me, um, I mean, they, they grew wings so that I could fly away. Um, and I think that my family background is my superpower and, um, you know, truly like getting to know the Delator family, um, people understand that when I went back home recently, I'm just reminded by it. I met with one of my sister's friends and she said, look, there's, um, you know, it's everyone's family and dysfunctional families that way down here. And then there's their normal family. And then there's the Delator family. And I'm not taking praise myself. I'm heaping praise on my parents because they, that is intentional that they just put so much time and effort into raising such great children. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm the, the least performing, like my, my siblings are amazing. My mm-hmm. brother is a, a, uh, you know, very famous actor in New Zealand has been on many shows in America. Uh, my sister was a world class triathlete and now is just the most phenomenal mother and, and uh, a great business owner. And uh, my older brother, Andrew is super humble, um, but just a great guy. And he's running the, he's the country manager for a rental car company in New Zealand. So just amazing people. And I just really enjoy my time with them. Mm-hmm. Always love getting back home. And I think the greatest challenge that we have as individuals is parenting. And I think that's what, if you look at what's going wrong in America or New Zealand or any big country, it's, you can, it often comes back to, you know, what, what um, environment was this child raised in? Mm-hmm. If we could become better people and better parents and take care of our children and raise them up to be loving, well-respecting people, the earth's going to be a better place. And yeah. I think my superpower was being raised by um, two people that loved each other. They, they met each other when they were 14 and 16 years old. They have been married for 50 years, and they just continue to encourage us to do, be the best humans we can be. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's incredible. Um, so I want, to, I want to think about uh, a message you want to leave all the listeners with while making just a couple of quick announcements. Mm-hmm. Uh, guys, if you get value today, you know, please like, subscribe, share, comment. Uh, we actually did a Q&A yesterday, and there were some complaints that they didn't know about the Q&A. So if you guys are not subscribed, subscribe and hit the bell so you guys are aware when we go live for a Q&A because we don't keep those up. Um, and then we do have our sales leadership event coming up. You know, Ren is going to be leading it. If you guys are running, a t- if you guys are running an organization or potentially your top salespeople are leaving, they're not working hard. It seems like they don't care much as much about your uh, their business as you do about your business. Check out what Ren and I are offering. Text leaders to three three seven seven seven. It's possible. I've seen it now with Ren's help that you can have your salespeople want to work as hard as you do. Right? You just got to figure out how to lead them effectively. And then we got part in the disruption tomorrow and certainty talks on Friday and Max Vollmer coming out next week. So make sure you check out that all that as well. So what are some last thoughts you'd like to leave the listeners with? Sure. Let me finish by saying, don't wait to buy real estate, buy real estate and wait. I truly believe that the greatest wealth accumulation that anyone listening to this podcast will have over the next 20 years will be directly tied to real estate. If you have money now, buy housing. If you don't have money now, Invest in yourself to learn about who you can partner with, how you can grow your real estate portfolio in the future, and start saving money. Don't just default to the norm, which is trusting a financial advisor, quote unquote, to put your money into the stock market. Like that is a default option. Be exceptional. Find out what you're going to, find out people that you can partner with. Educate yourself on how to invest in real estate, and then take that action because I can promise you in 20 years' time, you'll look back and just wish that you'd bought more real estate. 
Yeah, no, that's that's fantastic. And if you guys need any further, I don't know, ammo proof that stock market's a scam. Tony Robbins wrote a great book, Money Master the Game, and I was furious <laughs> after reading that book or listening to that book about like how much of a scam uh, the stock market is. If you're not on the inside, you're firmly on the outside. Yeah, ex- yeah, exactly right. How can someone get a hold of you? Oh yeah, would love to. Uh... Um, I have a podcast and um, a uh, YouTube channel, Mistake Free Real Estate. So look me up there. Um, we do stay pretty active on Instagram at Mark Delator and the same on Facebook. But um, for those also, if I can just do a quick shout out, mm-hmm. Steve, if you're operating in Kansas City, um, you know, we'd love to partner with you, realtors and wholesalers in the Kansas City marketplace. If you're not working with us already, um, please do. We are going to be coming in and aggressively buying and um, we just love to collaborate. Um, we're big believers in the power of collaboration. Um, actually starting up a new um, realtor uh, roundtable that we're hosting live um, in studio at our office as well. That, awesome. um, yeah, it's going to be really powerful because I believe passionately, which is why the title of this um, show today was so relevant, that I believe real estate agents don't have the knowledge base to just confidently invest in, in uh, real estate. And so I'm taking it upon myself to coach up real estate agents who are making good money and could invest in real estate to take that first step and start buying real estate themselves. So we're taking up that mantra and running with it in Kansas City. Awesome. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Steve. Thank you guys for watching. See you guys tomorrow. Shout out to Steve Train. Jump on the Steve Train. We real estate disruptors.